Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week, Lauren and Justin find out why everyone's buzzing about talks of a new planet, along with something very interesting that managed to survive in environments that would otherwise kill it, in environments where university students would actually pretty much believe they'd love to be. And we really get into the hearts of why we think there's a ninth planet out there, and what exactly is it, or what it could be anyway. So Justin, I want to talk to you very seriously. So I know New Year's has just happened, and everyone made their news resolutions before the New Year's happened, but some of us are a little bit slower, so I'm currently working on mine. Okay, well, what, what, are you, what are you going to change in your life, Lauren, now that it is a new year? Um, are you going to give up on writing 2015 at the end of the dates? No, I still do that. I still do that. I <laughs> am actually going to be reading more books, which seems impossible because I don't be reading 24-7, but what I want to talk to you about is a habit. Okay. This is a habit I don't have because okay. I personally hate coffee, but I want to talk to you about your coffee drinking habits. I only have like one a day, maybe two. I, okay, it's very strong coffee, but I don't have that many. I think it's time we went through a detox. Oh no, I don't want to give up my coffee. It's what I need to live. And in the instance of a certain type of insect, that is literally what they need to live and live in a pretty inhospitable place. <laughs> And the the uh, whilst I may have my one or two cups of coffee a day, there's a uh, little bug that uh, lives in coffee plantations and coffee beans that has the equivalent of 500 espressos a day. I'm just going to make an estimate here, but I'm going to assume this isn't very healthy for humans to drink 300 espressos a day. Uh, 300 would be impressive. If you're familiar with the episode 300 Cups of Coffee of Futurama, where Fry, with his $300, buys 301 cups of coffee, and by the 300th cup, gains the ability to see through space and time, achieve a zen-like state, and move at two times the normal rate. Whilst intermediately stage going through terrible health impacts. Now, that is a show of science fiction. By that stage, you are most likely very dead in reality. So maybe you do achieve a zen-like state of peace and calm at that point. So this little bug, this coffee berry borer, which has been researched at the Barclay National Laboratory by Javier Queja, has this fantastic ability to consume ridiculous amounts of caffeine, like just crazy levels of caffeine, equivalent to an absurd number of cups of coffee, because it lives and eats and survives inside coffee beans. So I'm going to guess the first question they asked is, how? How can this possibly <laughs> exist? How can you just live off of that caffeine? Exactly right. So, you know, the coffee coffee plantation growers for years have been seeing this bug and being like, why are you alive? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a serious plague. Like, people want to be able to figure out what's going on with this bug living in their plants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the caffeine of that concentration is such a toxic environment um, you know, it would be like drowning yourself in coffee constantly and really super strong Red Bull mixed with coffee mixed with like a million types of other energy drinks in powdered form. But, you know, this thing just is like, yeah, that's fine. That, this is fine. That's cool. I just absorb the coffee through my pores and it slowly just make sure all the good stuff goes through or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so all the different types of bugs and insects that found living in coffee tend to have probably 19 different species of bacteria in common amongst all of these different bugs. When we get into more detail, um, the coffee berry borer 
which is called the hypothenus hampi, is actually an exceptional organism because what it consumes, it actually doesn't just live in it, it consumes the caffeine. It consumes so much of it that it's actually getting its power and its energy and its food from it, but in such a concentration that it's insane. And the reason why is because it basically has an incredible digestive system, which is aided by a fantastic variety of 13 different species of bacteria, uh, which help it basically to survive only on caffeine. So inside this coffee bearer borer, there's basically a whole factory of different types of bacteria working together to process that caffeine and enable it just to eat nothing but the caffeine from the coffee plants. So basically what they did was they grabbed this bug. They were like, okay, well, they're going to take out all of the bacteria inside your intestine tracts, check out what type it is, and then we'll stick all of those bacteria onto basically a plate of coffee yeah, and see which ones still survive. Yeah. So they identified 13 different ones that by the end of the day were still alive, so were obviously the ones that were helping it consume coffee. Yeah, and that's, that's phenomenal because as a university student, many of us try and like survive <laughs> off just caffeine. And it ends terribly for us because humans need more than just caffeine to live. That is, a, you know, do not try to survive off caffeine as a, just caffeine as a human. It won't work. But for these coffee bearer borers, they can they can just do that. They, they their bacteria inside their guts enable them to just process the caffeine and get everything that they need from it. But not one. They actually need a whole collection of different bacteria to actually enable them to do that. So basically, then to ensure that it's just the bacteria, there's not actually something else inside the bug that's helping with this. They had to remove the microbial communities from the digest- digestive tract and then feed the bug some more caffeine. And they found that actually it stopped the transformation of caffeine um, and that the bug actually wasn't able to survive. So it needed that bacteria to be able to survive. Yeah, which is, which is incredible because basically now that, that species has become so adapted to just living in coffee plants that thanks to its bacteria partners that live inside it, if you remove them, it's just basically removing it, like taking out the engine or the converter, or the catalytic converter out of an engine in a car, the car is like, well, I can't turn fuel into explodey things now. How do I move? It dies, basically. And that's, that's really fascinating because now these scientists can actually go into the details of the microorganisms in the digestive tract to find out what makes them tick and what we can learn from them. And also see if we can help out these coffee-growing plantations that end up with the bugs, the bugs um, you know, consuming 300... Um, espressos. <laughs> yes. The... So whilst these bugs are amazing, they're also incredibly hardy. It's not like we can kill off their food source when their mm-hmm. food source is the stuff we're trying to grow. So now, knowing a bit more about how these work, we can actually hopefully improve our crop's resistance to them and uh, maybe learn a bit more about how to treat and process caffeine from these insects and their microbes inside them as well. They're specifically trying to take away the beetle's taste for coffee. <laughs> If you remove this coffee berry, berry borer's ability to love coffee, I guess if you detox the entire species, that could make them turn over a new leaf. But they, they need caffeine to live. Like, Lauren, that's just... They, 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 it's not like that. Like I, they need caffeine to live figuratively. They need caffeine to live literally. Hashtag not all beetles. Not, not all beetles, yes. So coffee bearer borer's are maybe the spirit animal of a lot of university students, but it is not advised that we undertake that kind of caffeine-only diet. For 
If I were to ask you how many planets there are in the solar system, you may answer eight. Depending on when you went to school, you probably would say nine. If you're particularly astute and have been following the news very closely, well, eight and five officially recognised dwarf planets. If you follow the news very recently, all of those numbers get a bit more confused again because some scientists would claim that we are indeed back to nine. And in a turn of events that are really can only be described as a tad ironic, the person who relegated our solar system's official count from 9 to 8 may in fact be responsible for bringing it back to 9 again. Now before you go quickly rewriting your textbooks, let's step through what actually is the case in our solar system that we know, and what that could mean going into the future. So as you know, planets orbit our star, Sol, and for many, many years, we've been trying to piece together what else is out there in our solar system. Now, many of these are visible with the naked eye, and we've known about them for thousands upon thousands of years. Others are more recently joined the party. For example, Uranus and Neptune are very, very recently discovered in the last 200, 300 years. And in particular, Pluto was only discovered in 1930 whilst looking for an explanation for why Neptune and Uranus's orbits was so unusual. Now you'll probably also be aware that in the years since 1930 and as we've expanded on we found more and more unusual bodies in our solar system which made us question really the uniqueness of Pluto and whether or not Pluto could deserve to be called a planet and this caused some controversy. And in 2005 Pluto was demoted to the dwarf planet category and this caused quite a stir. In particular many children at the time were thoroughly upset about this but nowadays it seems that most people have moved on and uh, it's only really the adults who grew up with Pluto being a planet who are the ones struggling to adjust to the change. And with Pluto, the reason why it was demoted, just to recap, is that in 2005 we discovered a very large object in the Cupia belt, Eris, which is 27 times more massive than Pluto, which kind of put it into perspective. And we needed a new category of small objects in our solar system that aren't quite as big as planets, but are semi-significant. And this includes, there are five officially recognised, but potentially several hundred, dwarf planets in our solar system alone. These are led by Eris, of course, Pluto, Ceres, Humea, and Makemake. Makemake being the most recently added to that list, which is growing every so often. Now, all of this is, is fine, you would say, but that doesn't answer the question about what's going on and why there's news reports of a ninth planet, a new ninth planet, not Pluto, but in fact another one. So just like how in the 1830s we, and then later on, eventually 1930, we, we discovered Pluto by looking at deviations in the orbits of Neptune and Uranus. We identified that there must be something there, and eventually we were able to actually get some optical proof of the existence of Pluto. A similar process is being undertaken by a number of scientists, in particular Konstantin Batygin and Mike Brown. Now Mike Brown, particularly famous because he was one of the people that discovered Eris and led to the killing off of Pluto as a planet. In fact, his Twitter handle is Pluto Killer. He's not really particularly subtle about his claims to fame. Now, the reason why they, they claim to have found some proof, and they're not the only ones, there are other researchers as well uh, who are tackling the same problem. The reason why they've claimed to discover a new planet is if you look at the behaviour 
of objects in the QP belt. This is the effectively the big ring around the ex extent. This is effectively the big ring around the edge of our solar system. Not quite the edge, uh, just the outer regions. So once you leave the planets such as Neptune behind, you sort of enter the QP belt where all the comets live and a bunch of other objects, including Pluto and a bunch of other dwarf planets. But when you observe them, they all seem to behave in a strange way. That is to say, they're all very clustered in elliptical latitude, okay? Which all means that they, they kind of line up in, in one direction, one, one plane. And that, that's pretty unlikely to have occurred by chance. Basically, if you, if you look at a bunch of other large cubic objects that we can track, things like comets, things that we know, things that we've seen, and then you watch them move through, you'll see they all kind of line up in the same level or plane. And just doing it with six objects alone is probably a 1 in 140 chance of that naturally occurring. Uh, and then when you extend this out into the, the rest of our solar system, you can see the, the odds then quickly shorten as you add more and more of these objects in. You actually get percentage chance of 0.007%, so 0.007% of a combination like this sort of clustering all in the same plane without some kind of interference. Something that's sort of pushing them to all cluster in this certain direction. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for this to happen. Uh, and whilst Brown and Batigan are suggesting that uh, Planet 9, which is the working title for it, which is in a very, very big elliptical orbit provisionally that they've suggested, uh, is the solution to this mathematical problem. There could be many others. Uh, there, in, there could be a big grouping of population of opposite aligned cubic belt objects with really long orbits as well. So to balance out the six that are sort of all clustered one way, there might be another six that are sort of equaling it out. There could be another, so that's option one. There's also could be uh, another grouping or cluster of highly inclined cubic belt objects with sort of medium periods. So that's kind of causing it a balancing out from another direction. Or there may be some unknown or undiscovered mechanism that's causing all of these objects to have the same plane. Now, the challenge, the problem with option one, number one is that we haven't seen any objects that kind of balance it out. There's number two is that whilst we have only observatory areas of that can look out there for, number, for a few years, we don't really haven't really found enough to sort of suggest there would be a, another cluster that we're missing. And really, th three is assuming some kind of force or new mechanism that we have no proof for yet. So, whilst uh, we have no definitive proof that there's a planet 9. It is a convenient solution to an odd mathematical and orbit, orbital clustering that we're seeing in QB belt objects. But what's interesting about this is that this analysis, for this to balance out and cluster these QB belt objects, it requires a big planet, really, really quite big. It's not like we're talking about a small Pluto-sized chunk of rock hanging out there. The calculations by Batigan and Brown suggest that it may even be the size of Neptune, which would provide the gravitational balancing that's being seen, but <laughs> that's huge from this perspective of something we're looking for. So we're looking for it with the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, WISE, which is basically measuring the sky with infrared. And it's looking to scan through all the objects to try and find something like that. Now, if it was something as big as Neptune, chances are we may have seen it. Uh, in theory, we could have missed it. Um, uh, it would be right at the visible limit of the longest wavelength of light if it's that far out, but it is potentially possible to find it uh, in the WISE data, uh, but it would be easier in a newer satellite, which is coming shortly, called NEOWISE.
whilst it's not a confirmed, and it's very tempting to say that, oh, this is definitely it, there's a nine planet out there. We'll have to wait till we get some more missions, such as Keck, Subaru, and Neowise, or future ground or space-based telescopes to help us actually look out there in this really unusual reach of the Cupia Belt and solar system, right at the very fringe of what's easily visible from Earth. If we want to actually find out what's causing these sort of anomaly in the orbits of the other objects hanging out there. Not being satisfied with constraining themselves to nine planets, there's also some unusual radio blips that we've been picking up from ALMA, the large radio telescope array in the Atacama Desert of Chile. And the radio blips being picked up by that uh, would suggest some kind of heat being reflected back from the sun, uh, from a planet. Uh, and it's picking up blips, and it's picked them up a couple of times, not just one-off events. And it's also been backed up by other observations from different groups across the world. And these these could just be blips, but we're not quite sure what they are. They could be transient sources. They could be planets passing in front of the telescoping viewpoint. But what is interesting about these is that they, that they could be from other objects. These anomalies could be out from other objects that are out there, uh, which some people are speculating which some people are speculating could be related to a planet 10 and 11, which would all throw all that complex calculations we talked about for planet number nine into all kinds of disrepair, and we need another whole explanation for what's causing these weird forces. So the reality is that there's a lot of unusual stuff happening in the orbits of objects in the Cupia belt and the outer solar system. And planet nine, the hypothesized planet, is a convenient mathematical explanation for the clustering we're seeing there. But we've predicted planets many times before, such as Vulcan, Nemesis, Nibiru, Taichi, Planet X, all other things hiding out there that have, once we've got better evidence from better and more reliable scientific instruments, have just fizzled away. And that may yet happen to Planet 9. But until then, we're going to need to wait for missions like Keck and Neowise to help us cast light and look at what is going on in the outer solar system. Because something is lurking out there, and it's just a matter of what it is, rather than if we'll find something. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. This week we found out about the coffee bear Bora bug, which manages to survive in 300 cups of espresso level cups of coffee. And we find out about what's going on with the potential for a ninth planet in our solar system. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia. <laughs>